What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. To manipulate the fears in others, you must first master your own. Are you ready to begin? I can barely stand. Death does not wait for you to be ready. Liam Neeson and Christian Bale there in 2005's Batman Begins. Adam, you've watched eight hours of Christopher Nolan Dark Knight movies over the past few days. Are you ready? If there's anything I've learned from doing this show for 15 years, Josh, it's that I'm never ready. This week, we continue our reappraisal of Nolan's filmography with the director's Dark Knight trilogy. That and more. Was that your Batman or Bane voice, Josh? Bane talks like this. Ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. So, Josh, we've arrived at the stage of our Nolan Oeuvre review where we've actually reviewed the films on the show previously. The first three films in the series, following Memento and Insomnia, all predate Film Spotting. This week, we're revisiting Nolan's Dark Knight trilogy. 2005's Batman Begins, which started it, was one of the first films reviewed on the show way back in 2005. That movie came out in June. The show began in March of 05. Unfortunately, our review on episode 18 of the show has been archived in the basement of Wayne Industry Headquarters, along with all the other film spotting prototypes. Count, you can't hear it. Count me, Adam, among the disappointed listeners who went to search for that review just today, thinking I'd be able to hear really? you and Sam. Yeah, I thought it would be good preparation. You know, I like to do my homework. Couldn't find it. So huh? we'll have to unearth that at some point. Yeah. I'll have to give you a tutorial on searching the Archive Film Spotting website because it's there, but you can bet I did not seek it out. Oh. No interest in listening to it. Yeah, the archive no. that I found only went back to, I forget what show, but it wasn't this one. So yeah, I'll have to get okay. that tutorial. But with that review lost to time, I guess the best thing we can do for now is move on to version 2.0. Tell us, Mr. Wayne. parents' death was not your fault. My parents deserve justice. I cannot let that pass. If you make yourself more than just a man, then you become something else entirely. Which is a legend, Mr. Wayne. Our Christopher Nolan overview stays on chronological track, at least for the moment, with 2005's Batman Begins, Adam. This is Nolan's big-budget, high-profile follow-up to Insomnia, which itself was a medium-budgeted studio follow-up to his indie breakout, Memento. What did I expect from Batman Begins in 2005? Nolan was already on my radar as a special talent. Superhero movies were something I enjoyed, but aside from Tim Burton's own Batman installments and Sam Raimi's Spider-Man efforts, Spider-Man 2, by the way, came out in 2004, I felt comic book films usually fell into a fairly predictable box. The question for Batman Begins, then, was whether or not the genre would bend to Nolan's promise or Nolan would bend to the genre. In 2005, to my mind, Nolan's will won out. 
Even next to Burton and Raimi's work, Nolan's take on the superhero film stood out as distinct. It was dark, it was intense, and above all, it was rooted in a real-world specificity that was recognizable. While building his costume, I love that Bruce Wayne orders some 10,000 bat ears that turn out to be unusable. This Mm -hmm. Bruce Wayne, and even Batman, could exist. Just like us, he had to do Amazon Returns. That first impression of Batman Begins makes me think that I watched it through the lens of a superhero movie, perhaps with tempered expectations. This time, though, in the midst of our overview, I was decidedly watching it through the lens of a Christopher Nolan movie. And from that perspective, keeping in mind masterful later efforts like The Prestige, which was Nolan's next film, The Dark Knight, which doubles down on much of what made Batman Begins so thrilling, Inception, and Dunkirk, Batman Begins played as far more conventional. It has Nolan touches, to be clear, deception, traumatized characters, a narrative twist, but they each seemed a bit bent toward the genre this time around. Something of a compromise, if an understandable one, given where Nolan was in his career. Ultimately, I think my original impression is probably the correct one, and we can maybe get into a tangent here, Adam, on whether or not a film's original context matters most. I think that's especially applicable maybe to Dark Knight Rises. But either way, Adam, I'm curious what frame of mind you were in while revisiting Batman Begins for our Nolan overview. Did you approach it as a superhero movie, which in 2020 means contending with the reality of the MCU? Or did you assess it more on a Nolan scale? You know, from Interstellar on the bottom to the top where you'll find Dunkirk. (laughs) How dare you? I love how you unnerve me heading into (laughs) my reply here. And maybe that's appropriate because even though you answered it, I see what you're trying to do. I'm on to you. You're actually previewing our pending discussion of The Dark Knight by presenting me with a Joker-like dilemma. Harvey or Rachel, press the button and kill the other passengers or risk them killing me, Nolan movie or superhero movie. You're just an agent of chaos, Josh. I always knew it. Do I look like a guy with a plan? (laughs) On one hand... Even if I wasn't looking at this film and this trilogy of films as a Nolan creation consciously, and I am, it would be happening unconsciously, of course, just by the nature of this little project that we have set out on. At the same time, I was eager to see this origin story again, because just like I suppose Bruce being forever scarred by his encounter with the bats, I'm going to forever be blessed with the memory of my first superhero movie. Richard Donner's Superman. It's been talked about a little bit over the years here on the show. And among its many thrills, it shows us who Clark is, how he got to Earth, those early discoveries of his gifts, running alongside the train, kicking that football, those first demonstrations of his abilities and helping people as Superman. That's the stuff I ate up then. That's the stuff I still eat up now. The fun stuff, I guess, that I equate with superhero movies that is lost the darker you alluded to this, the darker, the more realistic, the more serious these movies get. Honestly, the more these films feel less like Superman and more like James Bond. And that's definitely the case in this trilogy. I think this is where we really see it happen, right? Where superhero movies did turn into something else or became something else in pop culture. We watched it unfold over the course of these three movies, didn't we? Yeah, I think that's fair. I think you could roll in Watchmen there, but that was 2009. So yeah, yeah, this was ahead of that. I guess all of that said, Josh, I'm not going to fall for it. It's obviously a trick question. The right answer is, I watched it this time as a Christopher Nolan superhero movie. And likely because of that, 
I did like Batman Begins considerably more than I did back in 2005. Sam and I both gave it kind of lukewarm, positive reviews then. I'm, I'm warmer on it now, and I think some of that is just having a different reaction 13 years later, which happens all the time when we revisit movies. And you may disagree with me on some of these. We'll get into them. Is Katie Holmes as Rachel good? No, but not distractingly so. Bale's growl? Not really that distracting either. Is Tom Wilkinson playing a borderline cartoonish Italian mobster good? Not really, but he was fun. again, not distractingly. Yeah, not distractingly over the top either. Are the action scenes edited well in mm. an engaging way that doesn't seem unnecessarily disorienting? No, but there are some thrills. And one of those would be that shipyard stocking sequence where we see Batman acting like Batman for the first time. And in terms of supporting players are Michael Caine and Morgan Freeman and Gary Oldman, all really good, like really fun characters with gravitas, but the right sense of mischievousness and playfulness. Yes, absolutely. They are. So, you know, I'll get more into how these films inform or alter our understanding of Nolan as a filmmaker when we close out the trilogy in a little bit. I love your question and the way you framed it in terms of bending to the genre or not, or whether or not Nolan's compromising. I'm going to pose a similar question to you, but certainly I saw parallels in Bruce to other characters we've seen, the moral compromises, the deception, and even the theatricality. But I don't want to delve into that too much just yet. What was your take on Batman Begins this time? Yeah, I mean, I think I pretty much already gave it away. I think I was a little disappointed by it on this viewing, but I think I'm wrong in being disappointed (laughs) because I think Mm. you do have to realize um, where we were with superhero movies in 2005. And it isn't fair to say, well... Inception did this better, or even The Dark Knight did this better. I I think one thing we have come to see in the handful of films we've already done in this overview is Nolan's development as a filmmaker, and to recognize that he is upping the scale with each film considerably. I mean, Mm -hmm. these are big leaps, even if the jump from, say, Insomnia to this doesn't initially seem huge, it's big. I mean, it's significant. And he's also learning new skills. I think the fight sequences and the action sequences, that's something where you can see that this is an early attempt at these sorts of things and that they're maybe not the most successful thing in the movie, but there are those moments like at the shipyard where he does pull it off and you can see that it's going to be something that gets, he's increasingly expert at as the series goes on. So yeah, I'm in a weird place of saying it wasn't quite as fun or thrilling or inventive to me this time as it was um, when I saw it in 2005, but that's my fault. That's not the films. And it's the fault, not only Hmm. of the other Nolan films that I've seen since, but some of the other superhero films that I've seen where it isn't as novel to be dark. I mean, we got to a point where everyone was sick of that, right? The DC Mm -hmm. films, the direction they took were a large reason for that because they did darkness poorly. And so we really got sick of the darkness then. Um, But it isn't fair to hold that against this film, which really delved into that tragic element of the Batman narrative, which has always been a part Mm -hmm. of the character from the very beginning. It's not like Nolan is reinventing the wheel here. He's just finding one of the distinctive things um, about Batman as a superhero character and really emphasizing that and making that the hook of his interpretation. Mm -hmm. And maybe the one thing, you know, I can get to something that 
jumped out at me more because it's related on this viewing that I did like is the emphasis on fear. Um, I was initially impressed, again, with the realism, with the seriousness, with the thoughtfulness, with the darkness. Um, But it struck me this time that this is maybe one of the first Batman films that I was familiar with up till that point that emphasized that as a superhero, Batman is scary. And that's part mm-hmm. of his MO. He is meant to terrify sure. people. He's um, His stated desire at one point in this film is to turn fear against those who prey on the fearful. And that's distinct from a superhero that we want to admire, like Superman, like your beloved Superman, or we want to hang out with, like Spider-Man, who, who I've always loved. You know, you want to hang out with Spider-Man. You don't want to hang out yeah. with Batman, um, partly because uh, he's a guy with a lot of issues uh, and he's really morose and depressed, it seems like, but also because you would be afraid of him. And that shipyard sequence that you mentioned is crucial to this movie. It struck me this time for a couple of reasons. It is where the action makes sense. The editing makes sense. The filmmaking, the camera is far enough back where we can see what's actually happening. But it also emphasizes these scary elements, darkness, misdirection. It's like a creature feature, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And this is emphasized later in the film with some of the most unique imagery we've gotten in the Batman series from Nolan. Really freaky imagery after Scarecrow releases that gas in Gotham. For sure. How about the shot of Batman with the red eyes and the red mouth? Mm-hmm. He is so scary there that even though he's helping people in that instance, the crowds he's helping attack him. Um, so I did appreciate that more, I think, on this revisit is the emphasis on um, Batman as a character, as a fearsome creature, really. I, I like that quite a bit. Yeah, and I think that's appropriate, too, as we talk about where this film and these films sit within Nolan's body of work, because as we talk about that shipyard sequence that we like, you're absolutely right. He's terrorizing them. And as they are bad guys, and we're seeing him really finally kind of not utilizing his powers, but doing what Batman is capable of, there's a real thrill in watching him terrorize those bad guys. And there's a theatricality to it, which is also what that meta aspect of it is something I certainly wasn't tuned into back in 2005, but watching it now, watching it with these other films is something that struck me. This element of narrative. Think about Memento. We talk so much about Leonard not wanting to live in a world where he's a victim. That's basically it. So what does he do? He creates a new one where he's the Avenger. And Teddy even says it to him. What are you wearing? These aren't the clothes you wear. This isn't the car you drive. He's so set on revenge that he creates a new world and populates it with different players. And you know what? Just as I talk about it, it occurs to me that even the Polaroids, in a way, of the different people he's meeting are kind of like headshots, you know, as if he's casting this world. And here we've got Bruce Wayne doing the exact same thing. He's got these costumes and he's got the props. And in this world, he's the avenging hero. There's really no difference between them. And the other aspect of that is just like Leonard, we come to realize instead of knowing it at first, like we do with Bruce, we come to realize that Leonard in a lot of ways is consumed not just by anger, but by his own guilt. And so that's what kind of sets him on this path of devising a new world for himself, a new role for himself. And I like that you mentioned the tragic aspect of Bruce and Batman because that's something else I'd completely forgotten. And here I was just reminded of it, but also, again, as we talk about it within this context of viewing Nolan's films, understanding Bruce as someone who is driven to vengeance and violence, not just because something terrible happened to him and his parents unnecessarily were shot in the street, but 
there is that guilt aspect. That's what I didn't remember, Josh. The fact that it was him as a little kid who said, I'm scared. His fear. Yeah. That's the thing, right? His fear is what led them to go outside. And if he hadn't said that in that moment, then maybe that bad guy wouldn't have been there in the alley and his parents wouldn't have died. So it's not just anger. It's it's guilt. And I guess yeah. like Will Dormer in Insomnia, like Leonard, like the man at the end of following who is essentially right. He's confessing. He doesn't really know fully what he's confessing to, but he is confessing his guilt. That's such a key part of Nolan's work. Yeah. And it, it strikes me too. It's not just that he, you know, he said he wanted to go outside and that step led to their vulnerability. It's that the reason they went outside is because he gave into the fear. So it's, it comes back yes. to fear in another way. Um, it's just not a tool. It's also, as you know, as they talk about, it, it's a fairly obvious theme throughout the movie. It's what made him too. Um, and so he's inextricably tied to it. It strikes me too that as you're talking about that idea of casting, which I love with the Polaroids, is, is that um, Bruce Wayne, one of the things that curses him is that he has real figures. You know, Leonard makes a lot of that up to a, to a degree. Bruce Wayne encounters mm. real world figures who justify his obsessions, right? He he mm-hmm. has this threat to Gotham. But then and I think Alfred even, you know, makes a point of this at some point is is that, you know, you still need them to be around after you've won because it's become this obsessive thing for him. And so that even if he takes care of one villain, um, he really wants another one to arise, to feed um, mm-hmm. this vengeance, but also to feed this way for him to combat his own fear. And and that's something that I think progresses throughout the series. We maybe see seeds of that in Batman Begins, and then it comes to fruition further, uh, maybe the most in Dark Knight Rises. And that mention of Alfred and the pictures, even as we talk about photos that kind of haunt Bruce, it makes me think of the scene. And this is killing me. I just did rewatch the first trip movie, I think just yesterday as we're taping this. And the fact that I'm going to quote an Alfred line, but not at all be able to pull off a Michael Caine. It's killing <laughs> Don't me, Don't even try it. <laughs> it's really killing me. But I'm thinking about Memento and something I said about Leonard in terms of someone who's completely destabilized, like lost in time in a way, floating within a dream of his past, his present, and his potential future all swirling together. And that's really Bruce, too. I mean, think about when he says to Alfred early on, should I just bury the past out there with my parents, Alfred? And he says, I wouldn't presume to tell you what to do with your past, sir. Just know that there are those of us who care what you do with your future. So this sense of those three things being being undefined, but also in some way predetermined and that haunting him that's that's another aspect along with that obsessive quality that we see in nolan protagonist how good is kane in selling these you know just over the line of hokey bits of dialogue that are also kind of selling the emotional tenor of of the movie and yet he does it in a way that um that you just buy that's just authentic and moving and and you sense that I think it's maybe because Kane helps us to sense Alfred's loss as well. Um, mm-hmm. the loss of his way of life, loss of the family that was also a friend to him. And I think he puts that in all of the line reading. So even though in a sense he's underlining things, because it's Michael Kane, the touch is just right. Well, we both care for Rachel, sir. But what you're doing has to be beyond that. It can't be personal. Well, you're just vigilante. Is Fox still here? Yes, sir. We need to send these people away now. Those are Bruce Wayne's guests out there, sir. You have a name to maintain. I don't care about my name. It's not just your name, sir. It's your father's name. And it's all that's left of him. Don't destroy him. I mentioned Oldman 
earlier as well. Oldman's so good. There were good. a couple callbacks. Yeah, he's so good. And he's such a key part of yes. these three movies. Honestly, we'll talk about that more with The Dark Knight, maybe overshadowing some other key characters. But in this movie, I love the fact, or I got that thrill, and it's largely because of the way Oldman plays Commissioner Gordon and our investment in him as a supporting character, that when he says something earlier about Batman's vehicle and how he'd love to get his hands on one of those. And then later he actually gets to drive the right, thing. Right. That's fun, right? That's that's superhero movie kind of fun. And I'll say too, and you know what? If I'm being hokey about it, as I said, I had a better experience with this movie than I did or that I recall having back in 2005 when Rachel says to Bruce early in the film that it's not who you are underneath, but what you do that defines you. And then at the end of the film, he uses that line. He repeats it back to her to reveal himself to her really in a way, of course, professing his love for her by saying that. I loved it. I kind of got chills in that moment. And I think those moments do work in superhero movies because they're also often the way comic books can be written too, where where those sort of declarative statements you'll see in a word bubble and they'll be repeated as a motif. So I think to transplant them to the screen, um, it may work a little bit better than if this was some sort of standard narrative. And as far as this as an adaptation goes, um, you know, I, I think there is there's more that's brave about it than there isn't. And it was written by Nolan, Christopher Nolan, and also David S. Goyer, um, who did the Blade films. He also wrote Dark City, interestingly, before this and would go on to do Batman v. Superman after. Uh, But man, is there a lot going on. And this is one of those things that I think is okay on a first viewing, but on a second viewing can feel a little bit of a, of a slog. You've got the origin story, which they're very patient with, and I appreciate. And, and I remember loving that, just letting us soak in this story of Bruce Wayne as Bruce Wayne. Um, but beyond that, you also have Gotham's corruption. You have the Ra's al Ghul conspiracy. And then they, mm-hmm. they throw on top of that Scarecrow as well. And it's, it's a lot, even in Batman Begins, and there's even more in The Dark Knight, and there's more, there more, 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 more in The Dark Knight Rises. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, it's a weird, as far as a screenplay work of adaptation goes, um, it's something that's, uh, it, it definitely has its strengths and brave uh, choices that they made. But to me, it just felt like maybe trying to squeeze in a little bit too much. Hmm. Yeah, and I don't want to spoil that conversation we're going to have at all here in a little bit, which definitely is going to be a little bit more contentious because we see these movies differently, or at least one of them differently. But for me, one of the real revelations watching these three movies again was seeing how convoluted The Dark Knight was and not really remembering that. And honestly, feeling like in comparison for me, The Dark Knight Rises wasn't quite as much. And Batman Begins, I was very aware of everything you said. And yet there was a part of me that almost appreciated by the end how they were able to pretty sneakily work in key information that they had to like Rachel has to be inoculated really at the end for everything to play out the way it does. She has to be immune to the gas. Right. And so they accomplish that by working in the scenes with her and the antidote. And yes, it feels like a lot, but there was also a part of me that did begrudgingly kind of respect how efficiently they did it. Well, and there is one benefit to, to packing all this in And this is a through line through all three films that I do kind of like is that 
each of the villains, there's almost like a sub-villain that is being manipulated, right? So mm-hmm. so you have, um, obviously, you have Bane turning out to be something of a puppet. Um, and in Dark Knight, you have the way that uh, Joker really births Harvey Dent as the sub-villain. Mm-hmm. And here, I just love Killian Murphy as Dr. Crane, Scarecrow, and how he is he's kind of being manipulated as well, right? We come to learn, yet yet for he, for me, he's he's kind of the creepiest villain um, in the mm. whole thing. And what I really liked about Murphy watching him this time around is he brings a certain looseness, a live wire element to the film that's, that's getting a little heavy at that point. He's kind of a mm. loose cannon, but he's also, it's a very precise performance that Murphy yeah. is giving. Um, and and that's, and he knows when to play up like a line reading, like, would you like to see my mask? Like just, just to give that sort of this goofy circus-like question, but it's it's a real threat as well. Yes. And those eyes that Murphy has, I mean, it's it's like he's scaring himself a little bit when he's scaring a victim, right? So I, I could have used more of, of Murphy here as Scarecrow, actually, but I think that's exactly what they want, right? They want him to yeah. be a diversion, a sort of deception, um, and and give a, a little bit of some juice to the movie that maybe you didn't expect. Well, jumping ahead a little bit again here, speaking of callbacks, good or bad thing that we then get a little bit more of Scarecrow in The Dark Knight, and then surprisingly... Had no idea it was coming, completely forgot. We see him again as the presiding judge over this this makeshift court, right? Is that a good thing? Did you like Knight seeing Rises? him again? Oh, I, I loved it yeah. because, I, I, as I said, I wanted more of him and I had forgotten as well. And it's just kind of the perfect little scene. That's absolutely where Scarecrow would end up, right? <laughs> <laughs> it really is, though. In the moment, I was like, really? Him? Still? He's still poking around the underworld? (laughs) He just doesn't disappear. I don't know if you have any other major points to get to. I have just a few random things. Did you recognize the guy, the engineer, I guess, at the water plant at the end? Um, I'm, he's not coming to Certainly mind right now, but 05. I did recognize that the dirty cop was also the, the hotel manager in Memento, yeah. but that's not what you're thinking yeah. of, right? No, I'm actually thinking of, and I don't remember how to properly say his name if we knew during our discussion of following, but the young man, the lead, Jeremy Tybalt, oh. if that's how you say it, he's, he's the guy. That's it's right. definitely him as the engineer, along with that older man in that scene. I really like the opening and I like the opening to all of these films just in terms of the the color and the imagery, the black and white that we get here that then transforms, transitions into those bats. And also when that score kicked in, and yeah. we can probably debate how effective the score overall is throughout all three films, but at the very beginning and in Batman Begins, that James Newton Howard and Hans Zimmer score I found really energizing. Yeah, that's actually, that's one element I did want to spend some time on. Interesting, I had forgotten that it was a collaboration between the two of them, Zimmer and Newton Howard. And I think you could say, to me, to my ear at least, it does sound more like Zimmer. Uh, And this would be the first of their collaborations, uh, Nolan and Zimmer. I think he's done every film since except the prestige i believe um i do you know i'm i can run hot and cold on him as well i i know uh, we'll get into how you feel about that score for rises um but i think 
it's appropriate to the level of production here. This is a bigger sound. Um, it's more prominent. And I especially like the slow building ominousness that he gives to, I think it's called Vespertilio, um, which is, it, it's kind of appropriate for an origin story, I think, because it's just, it's like something that's, that's rising out of the ground, building towards something that's exciting. But again, getting back to this idea of fear, maybe a little bit dangerous. I also was aware of coming off these three films we've discussed previously, the mementos, right? Like the actual objects and artifacts, like the arrowhead that's passed between Rachel and Bruce, and even the flower, the blue flower, the status that that has and the role it plays early on in this film. And then I have a question that occurred to me this time that, of course, I don't know that we can know the answer to, but it's one that's kind of fun to think about. And it's also fun to think about in terms of then the trajectory, the potential trajectory of Batman, of Bruce Wayne as a man when he is planning to avenge his parents and he has the gun and they're in the courthouse and he's approaching him. And it appears that he's about to shoot the man, but then someone else kills him. Would Bruce have done it? Yeah, I think we're meant to believe he would have at that point. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's because he's, you know, for me, I think it's because it would have been the rash and the unplanned in a sense and the impetuous thing to do. And I think one thing mm -hmm. we see as this character develops is how strategic he becomes. And a part of that is recognizing his resources, right? That is like the dumbest way for wealthy Bruce Wayne to take out that guy is to grab mm -hmm. a gun on his own and just walk up and shoot him, right? You, you at, at the very least, Bruce Wayne hires a contract killer or something. Um, yeah. But he's young and impulsive and rash at that stage. And we see him become um well we see him become batman right who who is someone who yeah. who uses tools who uses resources who sets plans and then goes about and and does the vigilanteism that that he's known for mm -hmm. yeah he does all of it strategically but that doesn't mean he doesn't make the wrong decisions as we see over the course of this trilogy batman begins is available to rent on most platforms but only after scaling a minor himalayan peak and picking one of those rare blue flowers sorry that's just the way the world works good luck with that we'll take on nolan's next two batman films as a pair it's a dark knight versus dark knight rises conversation next plus because you can never have enough silly voices in one show massacre theater stay with us That's from the trailer for the new film Clementine, the feature debut of director Laura Gallagher. It's one of the films that's been made available to rent through your local art house via a virtual screening room. The plot, after a breakup, a woman breaks into her ex's lake house where she strikes up a complicated relationship with a younger woman. I'm shocked, Josh, that it's not really about your dog. Well, to be honest, Adam, that's why I queued it up. I thought it was going to be, but unfortunately, no. <laughs> 
<laughs> not a documentary about the Larson family dog who likes to eat rugs. Now, obviously, this movie had me at Lake House, but you've seen it, and I understand it's another Golden Brick nominee for you. Well, it is, but the more pressing question, yes, is it as good as the Keanu Reeves Sandra Bullock classic, The Lake House? It is, and I You're don't say ask that. that? I don't it's say impossible. That. I don't say that lightly, Adam. I'm a fan of The Lake House. I'm I'm on your side on that one. Very different movie, though. You could call this a psychological drama, maybe even thriller. It sort of, you know, teases us with going in that direction. It's very compelling, though, with two great lead performances, Otmara Marrero as the lead, this 20-something artist who goes to this lake house, and then Sydney Sweeney as the younger Lana who she meets there. And they form this, you know, it's a tentative bond. It's a suspicious bond. I like the touch where the younger Lana just always asks Karen, do you think I'm lying? Do you think I'm lying? And there's just something, even though she doesn't necessarily right away think she's lying, that you know starts to make her suspicious of her. And so their relationship goes back and forth. At one moment, uh, Karen is motherly to the younger woman. At other moments, they seem to be sisters. They toy with being lovers. So a lot of identity games at play here. And that brings to mind films like, you know, Ingmar Bergman films, honestly, like Persona or Cries and Whispers. But this is a little more sinister than those two, I think. So I also thought of something like uh, Henri-Georges Clouseau's pulpier, far pulpier, diabolique. I got shades of that as well. The thing that I think makes Clementine most distinctive, though, is the lighting in this movie, Adam. And uh, Gallagher, the writer-director, is working here with cinematographer Andre Carew. Uh, it's There's a dimness to it. It's set in this beautiful woods along this lake. And you know how you can get the sun kind of filtered through trees, through leaves, so that it's a it's blurry, it's a little murky. Sometimes that goes too far in this movie, but for the most part, there's a shadowy sensibility to the imagery that really matches what this movie is interested in, which is the fact that, you know, sometimes we don't see others clearly, and then that distorts the way we see ourselves. So it has a distinct look, some great performances, and yeah, as a debut from a new filmmaker to us, I think it it does deserve to be on that shortlist, at least, for this year's Golden Brick. Nice. Well, if, like me... You are now interested in seeing Clementine. It is available to rent via a virtual screening room. We will provide a link in the notes for this show over at filmspotting.net, or you can go to clementinemovie.com. And to see the current list of all of our Brick nominees this year, you can go to filmspotting.net slash bricks. Next week on the show, we're going to lighten things up a little bit. All this moodiness, all this darkness of Batman, we're going to replace it with Michael Winterbottom's Trip to Greece, the fourth and maybe final installment in the Steve Coogan, Rob Bryden series that comes to VOD on May 22nd. And we're going to pair that movie with our top five moments from the trip series. And as I said, in the last segment, I've already started my homework. I went back and rewatched the first trip movie and I honestly can't wait to watch three more. Yeah. And those moments are going to be really hard to choose. I just jumped ahead. I went ahead and watched trip to Greece, Adam. I wanted to get right to it. And, um, maybe this will betray how I feel about it, but I could do a top five moments from that movie because that's really? what the, well, these films are all, you know, they're like mm-hmm. great little moments. They're series of great little moments. So we're going to, I might limit myself to maybe one impression from each guy just to spread okay. the wealth around. Cause, cause you could easily just do a list of impressions, right? Yeah. When I was done with the trip and I was looking at my notes, I thought, you know what, here's what I'll do. I'll go over to letterboxd and my mini review will just be 
basically the honorable mentions, the great moments in this movie that I know for sure aren't going to make my top five. And then the more I looked at them, five, six, seven moments, I couldn't commit to leaving any of them off. Right. I like them all so much. <laughs> yep. So I didn't follow through with that. I may still. You can send your trip trilogy picks to feedback at filmspotting.net or leave us a voicemail, 312-264-0744. You can also send us an MP3 with your thoughts or find us on Twitter at Larson on Film and at Film Spotting. The current poll over at filmspotting.net was inspired by that trip to Greece review we have coming up. The question, what is your favorite buddy road trip comedy? And we gave you these decidedly male options. Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi in The Blues Brothers, Jim Carrey and Jeff Daniels in Dumb and Dumber, or De Niro and Grodin in Midnight Run. We also have Steve Martin and John Candy in Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, Paul Giamatti and Thomas Hayden Church. They were the pair in Sideways. And we are going to include the original The Trip from 2011. If none of those work for you, we will offer the option of other as well. That's right. You can write in a candidate. And last week on the show, we lamented the fact that there was a dearth of female road trip buddy movies. And we hoped that we would hear from listeners, maybe get some write-ins in that other category. And fortunately, as always, our listeners came through. Here's Jen. She says, so in hearing the latest poll, I realize how few of these movies include women or other representations other than white men. How sad and what a comment on our film society. Sigh. So I searched and found very little. Another sigh. Of course, there's Thelma and Louise, which we did acknowledge, but what about Vicky Cristina Barcelona or Priscilla Queen of the Desert? All excellent films which aren't white male bro buddy picks. Anyways, I was sad to hear the lack of diversity in the poll, and I know that is partly due to the few options, but gentlemen, there are options. So next time, remember the ladies or the drag queens or any other group which is sorely underrepresented. Love y'all. Love the show. Just so you know. Thank you, Jen, for that. All I'll say in my defense, and it's not a good defense, I have actually never seen Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. Not a movie that would be top of mind for me, though one I'm aware of and probably one I could have recalled within this genre. But Vicky Cristina Barcelona, that's a great poll. I had to look that up to confirm that that truly was a road trip movie. And Jen's right. And it's a great movie. That's that's maybe one of my favorite Woody Allens, actually. And I had forgotten that element of, of it, too. So, yeah, we could have included Vicky Cristina Barcelona. We also heard from... Kjartan Hansen in Prague. Good job. I think I'm saying that close to correctly. Uh, I just heard you saying that you were looking for female buddy road trip comedies. What about Gentlemen Prefer Blondes or Romy and Michelle's High School Reunion? Two movies I grew up loving. I know technically Jane Russell and Marilyn Monroe are on a boat, but I still think it holds up to genre rules. Two quirky characters interacting with strangers, putting their lives behind them and facing adventure head on. Otherwise, you're right. It's definitely a genre that could do with more female representation. Somehow, female buddy movies are typically dramas like Shanghai Express or Thelma and Louise. Thank you both for an awesome show. It's so great that you're continuing through the quarantine. You give me a sense of normalcy. Thank you so much for that. Love hearing from a listener in Prague. We don't get a lot of those emails, but I'm hoping that Kjartan can... Get out to the Golden Tiger, my favorite bar in Prague. Josh, what can I say? I'm like Teddy in Brooklyn Nine-Nine. I've got a thrills for the pills. Can you give us your other, your top five <laughs> Prague bars, Adam? Well, when I was there, I was only there for three or four days, but I made it to more than five bars. Oh, I can tell okay. you that. So you could. That's the only one. 
That's the only one I bothered to learn the name of, though, because it's the spot. It's the spot you got to go to. That's my travel recommendation for you and our listeners. Josh, you can vote in that poll now over at filmspotting.net. As always, we do love the comments wherever in the world they come from. Quick note here about our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show. Every two weeks, you'll find a new movie pairing from them. They pair a recent release with a classic. The hosts, of course, are Tasha Robinson, Scott Tobias, Keith Phipps, and Genevieve Kosky. This week, you'll find part two of their Career Women double feature, and that is a Golden Brick nominee, Adam, the assistant from director Kitty Green. They paired that with the film they discussed previously, Mike Nichols' 1988 workplace comedy, Working Girl starring Melanie Griffith, Harrison Ford, and Sigourney Weaver. New episodes of The Next Picture Show, they come out every Tuesday. You can find them wherever you get your podcasts, and you can find more information at nextpictureshow.net. A reminder as well that you can support the show by joining the Film Spotting family over on Patreon, where you get ad-free episodes, early downloads, a merch discount, live show pre-sales and discounts, Josh, when those happen again, and most importantly, a monthly bonus episode. May's bonus episode is scheduled to drop May 24th. We're going to take a look at Wes Anderson's The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou, a We Were Probably Wrong Once review. I certainly am expecting I'm going to have a change of heart on that film, but you know, I don't want to set the the expectations too high. So far, so good, though, on my family Anderson marathon. Started with Rushmore, went to the Royal Tenenbaums, and it's been great watching my two oldest kids enjoy these films. Holden had seen Rushmore once before. He watched it with me when we discussed it on the show fairly recently. And the word my 18-year-old son keeps coming back to every time he watches an Anderson film, at least through these two, is legendary. Every scene is just legendary to him. He thinks Wes Anderson can walk on water. And through those two films, he's maybe not wrong. I will take it. That That is very accurate praise, Holden. You're on the right track there. A little feedback here from a film spotting family member on Patreon. It's Christian Christensen, who's in Norway. Hey, Adam and Josh. The motherland, I, Josh. It is the motherland. Yeah. I, and I spent some time in the motherland with Christian. Can't remember the bar, Adam. I'm, I'm sorry. I can't remember the mm. name of the bar. It was a beer garden, though, in a city park. Quite beautiful that I hung out there with Christian and some others. Christian says, hey, Adam and Josh, I got a study job teaching last week. Schools in Norway have opened up with restrictions and thought, what better way to celebrate than sending some hard-earned money your way? Thank you for providing engaging discussions, friendly bantering, and laughs every week. It's just so darn wholesome. Also, thank you to Sam and all the others contributing to make this show great. Someday in the future, I hope Josh will return to Norway and Adam will make his debut. Stay safe and keep up the great work. I can't wait to one day make it to the Larson motherland. And I'm just going to say, I can think of a better way to celebrate than sending some hard-earned money our way. A pills. Just try a pills. Okay. It always hits the spot, Josh. Thanks, Adam. <laughs> I'm, writing, I'm writing that down. Good. Patreon.com slash film spotting is where you can sign up, which means now, Josh, it's time for Massacre Theater. The part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance at winning a film spotting t-shirt. A couple weeks back, Adam and I massacred this scene. What are you looking for, Phil? A date for the weekend? No, I'm just interested in you. You know, what do you want? What do you like? What do you think about? What kind of men are you interested in? What do you do for fun? Is this for real, Phil? Or are you just trying to make me look like a fool? I'm just trying to talk like normal people talk. Isn't this how they talk? Plus. Okay, so talk to me. Let me buy you a cup of coffee. 
and a donor. All right. That was Andy McDowell and Bill Murray in 1993's Groundhog Day, written by Danny Rubin and Harold Ramis. Ramis directed that one, of course. That massacre, part of our top five movie-going experiences show. So why then? That scene from Groundhog Day, our listeners weigh in. Lisa and Chris of Air, Massachusetts say, as you have heard by now, last week's Massacre Theater was quite easy, but I'm certainly not complaining. I did appreciate Josh's not-so-subtle hint, and renaming the main character as Peter also made it quite obvious a nod to Peter Vinkman. Plus, both Josh and Adam did excellent impressions. Well, listeners are going to beg to differ here in a second, Lisa. (laughs) Josh, as Bill Murray, really nailed his devil-may-care attitude, and Adam did an admirable justice to Andy McDowell's South Carolinian cadence. Groundhog Day has been very much on everyone's minds of late, as we all feel a like Phil Connors being trapped in a mundane daily existence where each day seems completely identical to the day before and the day before that. The passing of time, the seasons, the days of the week, our schedules and calendar plans have all become something surreal and unfathomable. But your lovely top five movie-going experiences episode was the absolute antithesis of this, giving us a multitude of beloved and uniquely special experiences with friends, family, loved ones, and strangers of like minds and cultural tastes. You guys have been doing such an amazing job keeping us all culturally engaged. Thank you, says Lisa and Chris, Josh. Well, thank you both. I think those two are very astute critics of performances, I must say. We also heard Mm. from Mark Provence in San Marcos, Texas. The answer to this week's Massacre Theater is the classic Harold Ramis comedy Groundhog Day, which I have watched almost every year since I was nine. This movie choice really tapped into the feeling of life in the age of quarantine, every day just like the day before. And yet, Groundhog Day also illustrates how the prison of endless time can create new opportunities for learning, meaning, and connection. For Bill Murray's Phil Connors, the repeated daily cycle enables him to learn the arts of ice sculpture, French poetry, piano, and actual human caring. For me, the extra time has enabled me to take a deep dive into the Criterion Channel, discovering gems such as Day for Night and or Debt. Shout out to my friend Joe and to the Film Spotting hosts for introducing me to this cinematic treasure trove. You know, I'm really hoping that you made Mark feel sophisticated there for a second and elegant by calling him Provence. I hope it's just Provence. Uh, it's got to be Provence. That's how I would do it if I were Mark. Of course. Mindaugas. Mosurus in Vilnius, Lithuania. I was clueless until Anna Donut. Hearing that line made it click. On the second listen, I have to say, Josh's reading of Isn't This How They Talk is also a clue. There's nothing in Adam's reading, however, which helps determine the movie. Cheers. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for the... The deadpan humor there, Mindagas. <laughs> One more note here from Corey Cogarty in Hershey, Pennsylvania. Groundhog Day deserves a better Andy McDowell impression, Adam. But when you wake up yeah. tomorrow, you might get another chance. Who knows? There you go. Thank you all for continuing. Your pod is a wonderful respite from the real world. Thank you, everyone, for your feedback and to everyone who entered. I think your clue at the end, Josh, may have helped a few more people enter and... The film spotting hat is fairly brimming, so why don't you reach in and pick out this week's winner? The winner is Jesse Marsh from Rumford, Rhode Island. Jesse, I would pronounce it Marche if I were you. <laughs> Congratulations, Jesse. Email feedback at filmspotting.net, and we will set you up with your very own film spotting t-shirt. How did I come to this? Not again. I played Richard the Third. Five curtain calls. Five curtain calls. I was an actor once. Damn it now, look at me. Look at me! I can't go out there, and I won't say that stupid line one more time. Oh, we're going to have some fun with this week's scene. And I'm going to admit, this is a movie that I haven't seen. But after looking at the script, and I'm sure after performing it, 
I'm going to really be eager oh, no. to finally see it. <laughs> Let me tell you, this is a movie Adam Kempinar will never see. I can almost what? guarantee that. Yes. I don't, well, I, with these two. I don't see you setting aside the time. Um, the, yeah, I like this scene because we both get very juicy parts. We do. And I just want to clarify from the top, I am not doing Michael Caine. So get you may think I am, <laughs> but get that out of your head because I'm not. Okay. No Michael Caine. There will be no Roger Moore. No No, impressions that you might find in the trip. I don't think so. Okay. And because we can't help ourselves, we don't want to make it too obvious. We're going to change the name so you can't just Google it, but then we're probably going to give you a hint with the name change as we usually do. So Josh, wow. You just have to come in cold. You just got to be slinging it right from the beginning. Are you ready? Yep. Here we go. Okay. And action. What's the matter, Cooper? You lost. Rebuilt the National Guard C5A. Flew at 8,000 miles on two engines and tried to set it down on the old strip outside of Manchester. Lost 122 men and most of my fuel. We need shelter. Place to refit artillery. We'll be out of your hair 1,800 hours tomorrow. That's a good story. Especially the bit about the plane. But there hasn't been anything in the air for 20 years. That's their territory. That's my territory. That's your territory. They're just renting it. Turn around, Cooper. Don't be a fool. We can do this easy, or we can do it real easy. You try it. (laughs) And and scene. (laughs) So no trip references, but you got in maybe another movie mentioned on this show. Possibly. Um, You just can't help yourself with the hints. We were both terrible. (laughs) What? I, I think that was one of my better. I don't. You had it for a little bit there, but I don't know if you're capable of being as relaxed as you need to be for this actor. So. <laughs> there is no way. There is not a chance in hell of that, Josh. Good call. If you know what film we just massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline is Monday, May 25th. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced in a couple of weeks. Bruce, this is Harvey Dent. Rachel's told me everything about you. I certainly hope not. You once told me that we'd be together. Did you mean it? Bruce, don't make me your only hope for normal life. You're Alfred, right? That's right, sir. Any psychotic ex-boyfriends I should be aware of? Oh, you have no idea. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. A clip there from the trailer for The Dark Knight, a film that made over $1 billion at the box office worldwide. 94% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes and 84 on Metacritic. Stephanie Zaharik, David Edelstein, the notable negative reviews back in 08. It was a film that was nominated for eight Oscars, winning two, including a posthumous Best Supporting Actor for Heath Ledger. Was notably not nominated for Best Picture, and reportedly that was one of the reasons the Best Picture field was expanded to more than five films the following year. As for The Dark Knight Rises, well, it actually outperformed The Dark Knight at the box office, though it was less successful critically. 84% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes and a 78 on Metacritic. Our friends Dana Stevens and Michael Phillips were among the most negative. Here's Dana's quote. At over two hours and 40 minutes long with repeated scenes of bone-crunching violence and a maddeningly unrelenting percussive score by Hans Zimmer, The Dark Knight Rises is something of an ordeal to sit through. 
Michael Phillips had this take. The Dark Knight Rises makes The Dark Knight look like Dora the Explorer and is more of a 164-minute anxiety disorder than a movie. Ouch. Well, neither of those fine critics are allowed back on the show after that. (laughs) So we've heard from fine critics like Michael and Dana. We wanted to get a listener perspective in here as well to help set up this conversation. And you'll understand why in a second we're combining these two films into one conversation. Let's go ahead and hear what listener Josh has to say about these films in relation to Nolan's work. Hey guys, this is Josh Weinhold from South Bend, Indiana, sharing some thoughts on the Dark Knight trilogy after watching the films in close succession for the first time in years. Among all of its achievements, I found this trilogy remarkable for the many ways in which it examines a theme Nolan doesn't really touch on in the rest of his work. Fear. While Bruce Wayne overcoming his frightening past is central to his emergence as the hero Gotham needs and or deserves, and Batman finds striking fear in criminals to be central to his efforts to clean up the streets, this rewatch should be most impressed with the way each of Nolan's villains distinctly leverage fear to break apart society. From the Scarecrow's weaponized paranoia to the Joker's penchant for chaos, to Bane's imposition of anarchy, each has their own means of pressing on Gotham's pre-existing cracks, shaking the foundations of daily life, and threatening to bring it all tumbling down. In that symmetry, we see a statement on the nature of fear. It can't be conquered. It will always be there, and a new threat will continually loom. Our only hope is to keep it at bay through moral actions, large or small, or, in the case of Batman at the end of The Dark Knight, questionably moral actions. Like Adam and Josh, I like just about every non-Batman Nolan film better than any of his Batman entries. But this revisit did at least help me understand a little bit more about what makes him thematically distinct from the rest of his filmography. Thanks, guys. Love the show. Keep up the great work. Thank you, Josh, for that. The disclaimer about this conversation, it's not going to be a full-on examination of The Dark Knight. Because we already did that, Josh, fairly recently. In fact, less than two years ago. It's episode 692. I'm sure you can find that one. Maybe not episode 18, but you can find episode 692 in the archives over at filmspotting.net. We'll also link to it in our show notes for this episode on our website. We did that in honor of the movie's 10th anniversary. We talked about The Dark Knight for almost 45 minutes. And looking back at my notes from that conversation... I had basically the same experience I had this time, maybe not a surprise, having only seen it less than two years ago. Also, if you really want to go back in the archives, I think when that movie was reviewed originally on the show, you weren't here yet, Josh, but Maddie, myself, reviewed it. And then I think we did a follow-up second episode just about The Dark Knight with spoilers, and Grinch, Michael Phillips, was part of that. So... Dark Knight Rises being the one we haven't revisited since originally reviewing it back in 2012. It's almost certainly going to get more attention here. And there is another reason why that's the case that will become apparent eminently. But to start, Josh, we heard Josh in that voicemail looking at the whole trilogy through that Nolan lens. And fear, as you discussed, being a through line, something that's perhaps not explored, at least not explicitly, in the previous three Nolan films that we've talked about. Were there any revelations for you on these rewatches about Nolan or about the films themselves? Well, I think, you know, the fear thing is interesting and especially in the sense that it expands in these two later films beyond Batman, beyond Bruce Wayne. We spent a lot of time talking about how it's part of the psychology of the character and both what he's fighting and what he's using as a tool. Um, But in The Dark Knight, we see, as Josh was talking about, how fear is infecting society at large and what the response is to that and how different people respond differently. I think that is inflated even more in The Dark Knight Rises, this use of fear as a tool by Bane, the villain, um, and the people behind him 
and yeah, somewhat in response a little bit as well by Bruce Wayne still. So, so I do like that that's a continuation and that is a through line. I think I'm with you, Adam. Uh, you know, that was a very exhaustive Sacred Cow review of The Dark Knight, and I didn't come away from this revisit with any big revelations. I think the thing that it was helpful to look at was, again, in terms of progression, not only in terms of Nolan's filmography, but within these Batman films, progression as an action filmmaker. And maybe the one bit I want to spend some time on with The Dark Knight is just that opening heist. We talked about Mm. it earlier, but we have lamented a little bit the action in Batman Begins. And even more than just the fight scenes, when I say action, I don't mean fight scenes, but just the commanding vision that is brought to a sequence that's built not at all on dialogue, but on movement. And I don't know if we get a better example of that than that opening heist in The Dark Knight, just the helicopter zoom towards that black glass wall of the skyscraper until the window explodes. We're in the window next shot, and it's a matching zoom from inside the room that peeks over down onto the street. And then the mastery of another matching zoom, a quieter one. But when we see Ledger at the street corner holding the clown mm-hmm. mask by his knees, yeah. the camera moves in and it's so it's, yeah. it's the orchestrated. Yeah. It's orchestrated beautifully in parallel and right away, even as much of a fan as I was as Batman begins right away, I recognize sitting down for the dark night. Whoa. Nolan has jumped forward here mm-hmm. uh, in terms of filmmaking on that scale. But yeah, other than that, I think I'm, I'm pretty much in the same place as I was with uh, The Dark Knight. So yeah, I'll be eager to sit down and talk about The Dark Knight Rises. I did revisit our review of that, which I think if I remember right, we saw that Adam and had maybe an hour or two between the screening and our recording of that review. So oh, of Dark Knight Rises. Of Dark yeah. Knight Rises, yeah. And it was early on. I think it was in my first couple mm-hmm. of months of the show. And we had a little bit of a split on it, um, though we were both fans. Uh, we were both favorable, which I think, as we've noted, was outside of maybe the critical consensus. So yeah, we'll see where we land now if, if we've moved much on that. Yeah, that's all I recall is coming out of the theater and knowing that we had to go straight to the recording studio and talk about it, which sometimes works out in our favor, sometimes isn't always ideal. And maybe as we wrestle with some of the key ideas in The Dark Knight Rises, we could talk about how the context of seeing that movie when we did and talking about it when we did undoubtedly shaped our perception of the film. There's so many places we could go here, but I guess I want to start by going back to that central question and what Josh was talking about as well in his voicemail of how these two films, how this whole trilogy really does or doesn't fit in with Nolan's filmography. And look, anyone can probably pick out any number of lines from any number of Nolan films and say, that's it. That's the line that I think best summarizes how I perceive his worldview. But one that struck me that would be as good as any, and I had this as residual, Josh, from our conversation a few weeks back of insomnia. If I did say this, I apologize, but I don't think I got to it. And it was in my notes. There's a line that Maura Tierney's character has. She's the woman who runs the hotel and kind of befriends Pacino's will. She says, I guess it's about what you thought was right at the time. It's after he's confessed everything that he's done. And she says, I guess it's about what you thought was right at the time than what you're willing to live with. And it struck me how easily that can apply to the young man in following, how it could apply to Leonard in Memento, of course, to Will as she's speaking that to him. But how about Bruce Wayne? Every choice this guy makes and has to suffer the consequences of just in deciding 
to be Batman. It's the kind of line that you could transport perfectly to the Dark Knight and you could put in Alfred's mouth or you could put it in Rachel Dawes mouth. And maybe not coincidentally, Tierney's character name in that movie is Rachel. Only, of course, Insomnia is Rachel. As I recall that moment, Josh, she's saying it in a comforting way. And Batman's Rachel would be saying it reproachingly. But there's another line from Alfred that carried extra meaning for me in the context of our look at Nolan, this from The Dark Knight Rises, when he says, maybe it's time we all stop trying to outsmart the truth and let it have its day. And outsmarting the truth, struggling with the ramifications of the truth, that's Leonard, that's Will, that's Bruce Wayne. Of course, it's also Commissioner Gordon and Harvey Dent, too. And the lie that Gotham's whole peacetime is predicated on. And I think, for me, why Dark Knight Rises ends up being still satisfying, as it was, maybe even more than it was the first time I saw it, is seeing it within this trilogy and within Nolan's body of work and recognizing the way it all culminates with Batman's legacy and the future of Gotham intertwined and now finally being predicated on truth. That seems so crucial to Nolan's films. And the question I guess I'm left to consider, and I'll throw back at you, this is what I hinted at in our Batman Begins conversation. It seems to me like you may have other reasons than me to feel like this trilogy could be perceived as a bit of a compromise for Nolan and his vision. But the happy ending that we get, ultimately... When this whole finale concludes, and it's a happy ending because truth has finally had its day. Does that reflect an evolution in your mind in Nolan's worldview, a less cynical view of humanity? Because that's not at all what we see play out in the previous films in our series. Or is it simply that this genre, superhero movies, it's so formidable (laughs) that like Bane would say, an unstoppable force meeting an immovable object that even Nolan can be beaten down by it? Well, I think you see evidence of this, you know, hope in humanity in even the Dark Knight. You know, that's what the ferry boat sequence was all about. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it's there in I think there's hope for Bruce Wayne throughout this series. But what has been most interesting to me about Bruce Wayne as a character and has been even more emphasized throughout this series up until the Dark Knight Rises, until he rises, um, has been the tragedy of Bruce Wayne not making that choice, not accepting that. And it does strike Mm -hmm. me over and over that this is a prison. Batman is a prison of Bruce Wayne's own making. Um, Even though he has, he's the only one who has the the keys to let himself out and he won't do that. And that makes him a very interesting character. Um, It makes him stand apart from other superhero characters. It's something that I think was very much set in place in Batman Begins and is solidified by the Dark Knight, especially how that concludes. And then I think it does um, turn away from that in a way. The only way I can describe it is like the Dark Knight Rises almost feels to me, and it bothered me more, I'll admit, when we first saw the film, Adam, the happy ending that you're talking about. I know that's one of the things Mm -hmm. we, we really locked horns about. It bothered me less this time, but I do still think it's as if you give Macbeth a happy ending. And by Macbeth, I mean Macbeth, (laughs) you know, it's like, here's this grand tragic figure who, you know, maybe is less heroic than someone like Bruce Wayne, but is equally imprisoned by his own choices. And if at the end he was, he was given a great vacation in Florence, you know? So I still think that's, is, is a compromise in a way for me to what the movie, what these other movies had been. But again, it did not bother me as much. I think I had some other 
issues with the film this time that are more tied to the plot density that we've discussed in mm-hmm. all three films, but I really do think yeah. is amped up here. And I think this is where we get back to the question of how do we perceive movies a second or third time? Um, and this is my only second time, I believe, seeing The Dark Knight Rises since it came out. Once we kind of know that plot, basically, it's a double chore to have to chop through it a second time. And I think that does somewhat work against The Dark Knight Rises. I, and I think it's, you know, what struck me this time watching it, and I, I admit it has more ambition and it has more scale, maybe even than The Dark Knight. It's interesting. I put out on social media, you know, what fans of The Dark Knight Rises would would say they love about it. And maybe the themes that kept coming back to me were the admiration for the scale and ambition, which is bigger, mm-hmm. um, and the embracing of political themes, which is in The Dark Knight, but is more explicit here. That seemed to be the yes. two things. And there's a big Bane contingent, fan contingent as well, people who love Bane. For me, though, it seems that that ambition got a little out of hand and a little maybe maybe beyond Nolan. And it's the bigger is not always better syndrome that a lot of blockbuster series fall fall prey to. There are moments here that struck me this time as almost a parody of The Dark Knight. Even I talked about the opening heist sequence in that film and the opening plane sequence here. Amazing imagery from time to time yeah. in that. Impressively shot. I love the whole falling away from Bane and the scientists. You know yeah. that that uh, it's just mm-hmm. outrageous. But it's it's also missing the simplicity and clarity of the bank heist. It's almost like a little bit like you're in a Fast and Furious installment and the priority was something bigger than what we had been given before. And I think this is a through line throughout the movie from the bat plane. I mean, I, I've never been one of those one of those guys who is super into the bat vehicles. I know people geek out about that, but mm-hmm. the fact that we get a bat plane here is just an example of things getting amped up too much because I don't think that works at all. And we can talk about the score in these terms as well. The score is amplified um, beyond necessity. So this time, I think those were the things that held me back a little bit more maybe than than what I might have seen initially as a compromised ending. Yeah, I think it just speaks to the different experience we had with this movie, certainly on this rewatch. And I didn't revisit our conversation back in 2012 or even look at my notes. So I don't know how much of this stuff I'm repeating or inventing here, but I was really struck as I alluded to in our Batman begins conversation about how confusing ultimately I found the dark Knight, And honestly, after making my way through that, the dark Knight rises seemed simpler, honestly, in terms of plot and all of its machinations, I actually followed it more closely. And it's interesting. I'm not saying that the opening to The Dark Knight Rises isn't more confusing than the opening to The Dark Knight. It is. There's so much more going on and names being thrown out and you can barely understand what Bane is saying without the subtitles on, which I did turn on. But I was actually going to say that's one of the things I love about the opening sequence of The Dark Knight as you were talking about the filmmaking, the filmmaking's so good that you're so invested in hanging on every camera movement and every every action moment, as subtle as they might be, despite the fact that you really have no idea what's going on. You don't know who any of the players are. You're not sure what their relationship is to each other. It's a little confusing, too. So I think that's that's kind of a hallmark of, of some of these action scenes in this trilogy. I guess that's, you know... It's hard to say that because it is bigger and even though it has that imagery that I liked it better, though, because you're, that confusion doesn't allow you to get any sense of character for Bane 
that we completely got from Ledger's Joker in the heist. You know, as, as as we've talked about, without even really knowing for sure he's the Joker yet, the way he stands, the way he moves, what he does, sure, it's all building character, and it, it just seems to me like the logistics and the stunts of the plane sequence are what are most important to Nolan in in yeah. the Dark Knight Rises. Maybe so, maybe so. I would counter with the calculation and the calmness and the ability to pull off something that audacious that that opening sequence is way more audacious than what the joker is pulling yeah. off in that bank heist and that's pretty great especially with the ending i know we talked about when the school bus you know comes in at just the right time and pulls yeah. out in just the right time but this is more audacious and that's fitting of bane's character too and it's fitting of the dark knight rises it's audacious like the it entire is. film is yeah you're right so okay Here's where I'm going to try to be one of those people who responded to you on Twitter. I don't know what those folks said. I didn't participate at the time. I hadn't actually rewatched the movie yet. But here's where I'm going to say things that, Josh, you're going to say, I'm nuts. And I'm going to say, I'm not. Okay. I'm not. Okay. Just like Heath Ledger in, <laughs> in The Dark Knight. So if you say you prefer the big set pieces and the fight scenes in The Dark Knight, any of the action scenes in The Dark Knight over Dark Knight Rises... Obviously, you're not going to get a rousing argument from me, but my point would be that they are comparable. They're a step up both, certainly, from Batman Begins. So this is a movie that does have that same kind of superior visual aesthetic that The Dark Knight has. Yes. But like Batman Begins, and unlike The Dark Knight, we've got a Batman movie that is actually about Batman. For better or worse, and it's definitely complicated, but I lean toward the latter, The Dark Knight is the Joker's movie. It's Harvey Dent's movie. It's even more Commissioner Gordon's movie, I would say, in a lot of ways, as far as the arcs, the emotion, the stakes of it, individually, but also collectively in terms of saving Gotham and all of the moral compromises and the hand-wringing that comes with that. Narratively, I just think Bruce Wayne, this was my experience watching it this time anyway, Bruce Wayne is a supporting player, and he's the least interesting character of the four. And I think in that way, in The Dark Knight, Again, for better or worse, maybe it absolutely needed to serve this function. It definitely felt like a transition movie with regard to Bruce Wayne slash Batman. It was there to facilitate growth, if you will, between movie one and movie three. So we've got the elevated action aesthetic that I like, and you've also got the focus on Bruce slash Batman that I like. And then you put with it some other parts like, for me, a great villain. And we'll get into this probably a little bit more. And if you want to argue, of course, that the Joker is completely in his own class, that's totally fine. I still really dig Bane, and I definitely prefer him to the Scarecrow, Ra's al Ghul, Falcone trio of Batman Begins. I really like Joseph Gordon-Levitt as Blake. I like the performance. Yeah, I like the I character. I like the, the principled philosophical counterpoint he provides to the choices that Gordon and Batman have made. Selena Kyle slash Catwoman. Not only the most interesting love interest for Bruce by far in this series, but Anne Hathaway's performance is in another stratosphere compared to Katie Holmes and Maggie Gyllenhaal. And maybe that's not a fair compliment or seems backhanded to Anne Hathaway. She's good, period. Yeah, She's yeah. just really good in this film. You don't get to judge me just because you were born in the master bedroom of Wayne. Actually, I was born in the Regency. Bro. I started out doing what I had to. Once you've done what you had to, they'll never let you do what you want to. Start fresh. There's no fresh start in today's world. Any 12-year-old with a cell phone could find out what you did. 
Everything we do is collated and quantified. Everything sticks. Is that how you justify stealing? I take what I need from those who have more than enough. I don't stand on the shoulders of people with less. Robin Hood? I think I do more to help someone than most of the people in this room than you. She has a character. Like, she has a story. She has, yeah. And that's the thing. Yeah. Yeah, I'm glad you say that because in fairness to Holmes and Gyllenhaal, of course, Catwoman is a juicier role, too, than the do-gooder assisted DA who's usually reprimanding Bruce for something he said or did. That That's a given, and she does have more of an arc. But maybe I would suggest Anne Hathaway could definitely have played Rachel in those two previous films in a more mesmerizing way. And I'm not sure those other actresses, as good as they've been in other films, certainly Gyllenhaal, I'm not sure they could have pulled off Selena Kyle. Just what she's able to do in terms of hitting certain emotional beats, playful beats, just by lowering her voice a little bit or tilting her head down a little bit. The scene where she's talking to Blake, to Joseph Gordon-Levitt after she's been captured, and he asks about whether or not Batman's still alive, and that look on her face suggests genuine remorse. It's something you just don't feel any emotional beats like that from the Rachels in the two previous films, unfortunately. But then last but not least, it's how for me, and I already got into this a little bit, it's how The Dark Knight Rises works as a trilogy finale. This is where we really differ, I think. It's the the satisfying, maybe I'm just a sucker for the happy ending, Josh, but it's the satisfying closure of all the key ideas. That unspoken moment between Alfred and Bruce, which which culminates the journey perfectly for both men in terms of what they've always desired in life and for each other, going back to Batman Begins. As I already mentioned, the reconciling of Batman's legacy in the future of Gotham and that all being finally predicated on truth. And then going back to the beginning again, Batman being a symbol and as such, a cowl that someone other than Bruce Wayne could wear. I love that touch, that closing touch that doesn't feel to me like fan service. Honestly, it feels, as I'm saying, just a culmination of the trilogy and that key thematic idea. Robin exploring the Batcave and the suggestion that he would probably take over as this new beacon of justice and hope. It just, it all comes together and does so in a way that's so satisfying that when I add it all up, Josh, and here I'm going to go full Larson here, you not only get a movie that's certainly not the worst of the three, it might be, it might be the best of the three. Oh, hey, go ahead, go ahead and say it. I mean, you've got people out there who who agree with you, and I don't know if that's a matter of just you know hearing from that's different comforting. folks or it's, it's or who or you know if their estimation of the film has changed over the years. And I don't think that's a ridiculous thing to say. I'm still a fan of the movie. I think you know not to belabor the point about our differences over the ending. I think for me, it just comes down to the basic fact of the way I perceive this character and understand this character mm-hmm. is that Batman should be doomed. He can win battles, but he's a more interesting character if he may lose, somewhat lose the war with himself. Or if not that, his redemption should be personal and quiet in a way. It's it's just that last scene of him like living the good life. Like that's just a step too far. But it's personal and quiet. It's both personal and quiet. Not really. Josh. He's like out in a public square in the sun. Like it's, you know, it's it's living just his life. It's just I, I I like what you're talking about where someone new takes on the cowl and wears it differently. Mm-hmm. To me, it was just, you know, it could have been handled in a different way where there's a little more balance and some of that doom could have been retained. But but again, we we've kind of covered that. I, I agree with you on a lot of the other stuff you said. Anne Hathaway is, you know, I liked her in the first time around. She's a such she's having so much fun. And it's a 
it's a nice presence to have in a film as dark as this. There are some moments where she seems like she's dropped in completely from another movie and the balance is off a little bit. For, but for the most part, I think she's fun and I think it's a really good performance. I love how she's a con woman first. That great scene when she's selling right. Wayne's prints and a shootout erupts and she immediately snaps into the terrified little girl, right? She starts screaming like she's afraid in order to get oh, out. Yeah. She pulls a great yeah. con. Great so, acting. Great I think she's acting fun. as an actress. Yeah, exactly. I like. I do like Bane. The physicality is good. I like that he's a different direction than the Joker. I like the line "I'm necessary evil." And what what was the Joker if nothing but unnecessary evil? Right? <laughs> yeah. Evil, evil without yeah. a point. I do think the performance at times can get a little campy, um, and you know. Just having him like shoot henchmen, there there are elements to Bane that are also a little more generic compared to the Joker. So I, I'm sorry, they're they're just not in the same league. Even if I do like him hmm. as a villain, and I do like him as a counter to the Joker, that they went in that direction. Yeah. Jo- Joseph Gordon-Levitt, really good here. Totally with you on that. I mean, it's curious why he's the only one who has a Gotham accent. <laughs> I still can't figure that <laughs> out, and nobody else does. Um, you mean a Chicago accent? Is that what he's going for? Okay. Well, um, no, probably not, <laughs> but we know it was filmed here, right? Yeah. So, yeah, for me, I mean, I do, as I'll mention here in a second, I, I like Bane more than you for specific reasons, but I also really like him as the counter to the Joker, as you yeah. said, where the Joker, it's not that he couldn't take care of himself in a fight. We see that to an extent. He can certainly destroy lots of people and property. He is capable of killing, but he is much more of a psychological terror than he is a physical terror. And that's what Bane is. So, you know, you've got an agent of chaos versus an agent who harnesses chaos. It's a weapon for Bane. And, And that's the key distinction, right? Chaos is the objective for Joker. It's not the objective at all for Bane. It's just a tool he uses. And, I will say as good as Ledger is, and as much as we all probably rightfully see him as the ultimate superhero movie villain, Bane does for me in some ways feel like the logical escalation, and that's a word that's used in this series, right? The escalation from the the classiness and subtlety of Ra's al Ghul to then whatever Joker is, to then Bane kind of combining combining that element where he'll still harness chaos and he's doing damage on a much greater level than Joker is capable of, or at least seems that he's intent on in the dark night. But he also has that, that big picture approach. He's ambitious, right? He's, he's audacious and he pulls off a really complicated scheme that even makes the Joker's complicated schemes pale in comparison. But the other thing is he just, he's scary. I just think he's scary as a villain and I know, and the Joker is too, but I feel legitimate concern The moment we meet Bane, in that opening scene even, but especially as we get to know him a little bit better, I'm scared for Batman. I'm scared for the fact that there's just no way he can handle him, and he's going to get broken by him. And when I mean broken, like broken in two, which does essentially happen to him, right? So his, his scariness and his imposing nature actually does then, unfortunately, lead to one problem. And I think I had it back in 2012. I still have it now. And it's that... At the end, what is Batman's plan for defeating Bane, right? Like, if you get hurt that badly, (laughs) you need a new approach. (laughs) You need an edge. And Batman comes back the same as he was. Actually, he's even worse, right? Because he just came from a prison where no matter how many push-ups or sit-ups you do, it's not exactly high-end training or proper nutrition. And yes, he does damage the mask, which seems to affect Bane a lot, 
but that also comes off as more luck than anything. And I don't know, maybe Josh, what I think Nolan wants us to dial into is the idea that he's a new Batman, essentially because he's finally embraced that fear that we've talked about. And he's embraced something else before that he was denying. He says it in the prison, anger. He finally decides to really tap into that. And he's committed in a way that maybe he wasn't before, as suggested by Alfred, that He's looking to be beaten when he first meets Bane. But I'm just going to say I can find all that stuff. But that psychological mumbo jumbo is not enough for me to actually believe in the moment that Batman can beat Bane in any mano a mano scenario. It just right. Nolan sets him up as too terrifying a figure. Yeah, I think it's it is supposed to be a psychological edge. We're supposed to believe he has now, but I didn't quite buy that either. And it's part of you know my problem with Batman's larger trajectory, where one of the really good things about this film at the start is how old and hobbled Bruce Wayne is. Um, yes, and he does make this complete transformation, not only from that back to being able to take Bane on as well as he can, but then losing, and then as you said, the prison sequence, and 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 it's it's almost as if we're watching this interesting story of Batman winding down towards the end and possibly losing, and maybe having to pass on this role that he's created for himself to someone else to suddenly heroically rising to heights we've never seen before. And I just think mm -hmm. that character trajectory is not only not believably sold in the film, but maybe a little bit less interesting. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's not to take away from Bane. Cause I think I do agree that he's an effective villain. There, there was one thing I wanted to ask you about that, you know, that I did have issue with the second time around uh, more than I did the first. And this goes to the whole idea of an overview of watching things years later, you know, in a new context and with new ideas at play in the air circulating in the air right now. Sometimes mm -hmm. we find movies are, are timely in ways they could never have anticipated. Sometimes we find that they're out of step with time. For me, at least, The Dark Knight Rises, one of the things that appealed to me so much at the time was how a lot of these ideas and themes that Bane is espousing, that Nolan is playing with, seemed applicable to like the Occupy movements going on. And so something like that great image of the stockbrokers kidnapped, mm -hmm. being held hostage on the back of the motorbikes, you know, when, when the Occupy Wall Street had just been happening, what a great image that was. And I loved how Nolan just dropped that in there and it had a vibrancy, it had a relevance. But for me, this time, removed from that, those themes had less resonance. Um, and I think it's because they lack a clarity. They're just kind of thrown out there in this film. The whole uprising of, um, you know, the middle class uh, against the rich, all these things are kind of thrown out. And it kind of connects with Bane as a villain a little bit, too. You know, he claims to have a purpose. You've talked about the clarity of his vision and his plan. But I found it very convoluted. I found it very rushed. And this was even before it's revealed that he's a puppet. You know, that kind of throws a whole nother mm -hmm. kink in things. Part of the problem in the final act is that this post-Bane society of Gotham is never coherently envisioned. The world building there is not. is not real good. And it was weird because, you know, I referenced the MCU at the, tar at the start of this show. I kind of, watching The Dark Knight Rises, I missed the evil clarity of Thanos in Avengers because it was like, hmm. okay, here's here's a guy who has a very clear, deranged plan and a simple way of going about it, and that's all they needed for the movie then to unspool. And there were a lot of permutations and convolutions to Bane's plan. It's interesting, Adam. I, I know when we did that Sacred Cow of The Dark Knight, you described it at one point. You said it might be a movie that's more fun to think and talk about than to watch for The Dark Knight. Hmm. 
I've got to say, for me, it was doubly the case here with The Dark Knight Rises, where there were a lot of ideas at play that I was intrigued by. Back when the movie came out, I thought, wow, they're touching on this. But now, removed a number of years, they just seemed confusing to me. But that's this is my question then, is like, is that fair to the film? Like, shouldn't, shouldn't the original context be the most important in terms of judging well, a film's effectiveness? Maybe, but... Yeah, this is a complicated question, and I think my response isn't going to be so much the answer you're looking for. Instead, I'm going to maybe counter that it still has the real world specificity. It's just shifted as our culture has shifted. I think for me, the experience I had with it this time, removing it from Occupy Wall Street directly, and we touched on this, we walked out of that theater, went to talk about this film, and Everywhere around us, swirling in the news or on social media or anywhere, is talk about the 1% and the 99%, yes. which is something that that was not a large topic of conversation, right, in pop culture, that phrasing even. And they don't mention that phrase here specifically, I don't think, in the movie, but it's certainly suggested, right? It's alluded yes. to this battle. and. We did see those protests and we saw the things happening right outside Wall Street. And so there was a real world potency to it and timeliness that was undeniable the same way in the midst of and to an extent in the wake of here, the Me Too movement. We watch movies that deal with that topic in a different way. But I guess what I felt really this time was just that some new form of injustice is just going to take its place in the culture and in our mindset. And actually, I'll bring in some backup here. One of our friends, longtime listener Josh Youngerman, is a big fan of this film. And I think what he says here is pointed, but worth considering. He says when the film came out, it was misguidedly taken to be a commentary on Occupy Wall Street. And I didn't look into this, Josh, but that might be fair. I mean, this movie came out and was probably being made at a time where I'm not sure any of those references were meant to be tied in. It just so happened that its release coincided with it. I don't know all the facts on that, but Josh continues, while some of the scenes do resemble Occupy and class warfare is a theme of the film, this film is ultimately about how a phony and evil populace taps into real anger and economic injustice to attempt to destroy a city. I think what Nolan is expressing is that when these crises are ignored, bad faith actors will exploit them, and this could lead to something close to fascism. You know, I'll, I'll let you read between the lines of what Josh is getting at, but I felt that watching it this time, even if I wasn't thinking about precisely what I was thinking about back in 2012. Yeah, I guess my point is, and, and Josh and I had a little bit of back and forth on Letterboxd too, where, where he made some of these comments. And I see I see where he's going and I see, you know, the, the, the illusions he's making. Uh, there's a lens where that makes sense. I guess for me, what I'm saying is lacking the particularity that it had back then, we need Bane's, at least I need Bane's plan to be more specific than it is. The vagueness to it now doesn't work as well for me. And really the effectiveness, because to say he, you know, we never quite understand how he's exploiting populism in this film because it's just that narrative element is just not well constructed. He begins by, hmm. you know, threatening the entire city with a nuclear bomb, but then there's one person who holds the trigger, this trigger man. There's a lot of talk about the trigger man that I never quite understood well it's them all along well right that's that's like a joker like trick but this isn't right yeah but that's not manipulating populism 
You know what I mean? That that's kind of is. back to the to the fear I think it is because then they're policing each other. They're policing each other. You're forcing people to turn on themselves, basically. But I never quite understood the factions. Like then there are these anti-police factions, and there are suddenly pro-Bane factions. To me, it all goes back to this idea of the world building not being done well. Once Bane does control how he is manipulating people, what his threats are, what the the insurgencies are, you know, and all these factions that develop if. The more vague that is, and I contend that it's very vague, I think it loses potency is a good word. It loses that potency that the movie had when there were specific parallels that we could make. Well, here's where we agree. The world building there isn't potent enough. It isn't believable enough. It doesn't make me really feel like I understand what's going on in Gotham despite some of the the different surveillance stuff that's set up and we get a sense of people kind of hiding. But really, it feels like a lot of stuff thrown at the wall, and I don't really feel like I understand what life in this new dystopian world that is Gotham, what it really feels like. I'm with you there completely. I think the only difference is, and it's whether I just tapped into something different with Bane or it was a line that I picked up on, is that I feel like I always pretty clearly understood that none of that stuff actually mattered to him, that it truly was always just something that he was using as a distraction, that his goal, his goal was to just destroy everything. Correct. So as long as you know that his goal is to destroy everything and this is all just a show, well, that's that's the part, unfortunately, I think is too similar to what we have with some leaders today, is the idea that they'll use certain rhetoric to inflame things, to distract from things, but... At the end of the day, maybe what they only really care about is A, themselves, and B, destruction on some level. Yeah, cor- that correct, and that's fair, and I can see that resonance. I guess for me, you still need to understand how the show works, and especially for these Dark Knight films, because Gotham and its citizenry has always been a key part. You know, we, I think we talked about in, in our Dark Knight Sacred Cow review how Gordon was such a key symbol of the citizenry. Mm-hmm. Um, we didn't see a lot of people um, because he and his family, particularly his son, kind of represented those people. And so suddenly for them just to be um, these faceless mobs who we don't understand, now why are they fighting Bane's mercenaries? Now why are these people like attacking the penthouses who is who is at you know scarecrow's court who are the people you know being yeah. judged who yeah. are judged like all of that it may be show and i understand that like in the end plot wise it doesn't matter but psychologically and when it comes to some of these larger questions of moral decisions of the citizenry and what is gotham going to stand for whose side are they going to take what are they going to give up in order to have their personal freedoms that stuff Bane's plan depends on exploiting all of that for the show, at least for the show. And and that's yes. what I wish had been a little more clearly communicated. But you know what also worked for me and what I think helped was having seen these three movies in order. And this economic disparity is something that is touched on in The Dark Knight. It's way more subtle. But seeing it in such close proximity to Batman Begins, you then started to see it as a little bit more of a through line. I mean, this whole idea of people reacting to their environment, how they're treated or mistreated by those in power, that's that's the entire beginning and really the entire film of Batman Begins, right? So in some ways, I just like the fact, Josh, that it did follow through on that, that it, it closed that loop as far as the economics and that disparity influencing behavior and really being one of those key questions of how you 
how you combat that injustice, all these different types of injustice that are swirling around us, and you see how they're interrelated. So I like that it brought us back to that, I guess. I will close with a comment from a listener, Alex, in Boston, who says he's the biggest Batman fan listening to the show. He says, does any trilogy better reflect the angst and unrest we have felt throughout the 21st century? In Batman Begins, we see how corruption can eat away at our faith in institutions. In The Dark Knight, we are forced to deeply consider the motivations, or lack thereof, of terrorists, as well as the civil liberties we are willing to sacrifice in pursuit of those terrorists. In Rises, we see the world explode with the poor more than willing to turn against the rich when given the chance. Privacy versus security, the rise of populism, the definition of justice, economic inequality, all of these are themes that we are forced to consider throughout Nolan's trilogy. All of them are themes that the world is grappling with today. Well, and I think that speaks to why, you know, one thing I think we can agree on is when you put this trilogy in the context of most superhero films, it's it's definitely, at least for me, it's in the upper echelon because how mm-hmm. many Maybe we disagree on which films are as successful at executing it compared to the others, but how many other superhero trilogies would take all these ideas on, right? Even even take right. them on, even have the ambition to. And I think that was a hallmark from the start with Batman Begins and is definitely a through line through The Dark Knight Rises. So I've been so glowing in my comments. I will at least point out that Another thing that bugged me then and still really bugs me now, everything surrounding the logistics of Bruce's return to Gotham. Just all of the conveniences of the plot and the timing that takes place there, it's its tough to watch. I mean, the idea that he's halfway across the world and has no no anything, and then he just shows up back in Gotham and meets Lucius and he's ready to throw down, it's, it's a problem. It does tie into the, the wealth thing, too, though, because he's supposed to have lost all his money at that point, right? And yet, so, yeah. Yeah. He's yep. got options, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What is it that Selena says? Even the rich don't lose everything the way we do or yes. something. She yeah. has a, a much yeah. more eloquent line, but it really does get at that. The Dark Knight and The Dark Knight Rises are available via VOD on most platforms. And we remind you that you can hear our 2018 Sacred Cow review of The Dark Knight. You'll find a link in the notes for this show. Josh, our Batman extravaganza is over. Possibly the final word on these films, Adam. I think we've covered them. Yeah, at least for us for a while. (laughs) I agree. All right. That is the end of our show. If you want to find us on Facebook and Twitter and continue the conversation there, Adam is at Filmspotting. I'm at Larson on Film. Over in the show archives at Filmspotting.net, you can find reviews, interviews, and top fives going all the way back to 2005, including somewhere Somewhere in those archives is the original Batman Begins review. You can also vote in the current film spotting poll on our website. We're asking, what is your favorite buddy road trip comedy? To order show t-shirts or other merch, visit filmspotting.net slash shop. And you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter at filmspotting.net slash newsletter. Next week here on the show, we're going to talk about a series of films that I thought was going to be a trilogy. But thankfully, Steve Coogan. Rob Bryden and Michael Winterbottom have blessed us in this difficult time with another trip movie. The Trip to Greece is coming out May 22nd on VOD, and we're going to talk about it, and we're going to share our top five moments from the Trip series. I guess I've been calling it Trip Trilogy, but it is a quartet of films now, and it sounds like I'm going to have... Maybe a few options to consider from the new one, Josh. Oh, indeed. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Kat Sullivan. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. Adam, 
go have yourself a pills. <laughs> I'm Adam Kempadar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.